0: Good afternoon and welcome to Our Recourse, a one-hour radio show named in honor of the Immaculate Mother of God, hosted by Brian Gale. As Pope Francis says, Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And as our beloved Church has long taught, His Mother is our ever faithful recourse to that mercy. So sit back for the next hour and enjoy Our Recourse with Brian Gale.
1: Welcome, friends, on this drizzly Monday on the 22nd day in the month of Mary. But to brighten your day, we have a remarkable reversion story. You've heard of conversion stories. This is a reversion story, soon to be explained in full. It's a story about a young fella baptized into a good Catholic family who loses his way, does it sound familiar, in young adulthood, only to embark on an extraordinary journey uh, home. Uh, you may have seen it literally on... Uh, a Journey Home, Marcus Grodi on EWTN. It ran a couple weeks ago. Incredible story. Anyway, this man is now a wonderful husband and father and actually holds the evangelization and adult formation portfolio for the entire diocese of Arlington, Virginia. Talk about a happy and safe landing. Uh, Whose bishop, by the way, not so incidentally, happens to be a dear friend of all of ours, uh, and that is, of course, Bishop Burbage from Cardinal Hara O'Hara High School. O'Hara High School. And he is this man's uh, direct report. He reports directly to the bishop, and we are just delighted to welcome him. John, thanks so much for coming on with us today.
2: Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Wonderful to have you. Uh, Bishop Burbidge, is he behaving himself, first question?
2: (laughs) Well, one thing I'll correct you on immediately is that I don't actually report to him directly, so you'd be surprised at how uh, seldom I see him.
1: (laughs) Well, Knowing him as I do, uh, you will not be able to hide for long.
2: <laughs> no, he's a wonderful man. He's such a personable guy. It's a joy to have him here.
1: Yeah, thank you. No, he's really a saintly guy, and we so many of us, of course, know him and love him, and we know of his great love for uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. He and his dad had season tickets, and they went for many, many years, and when he got news, he was being transferred down to North Carolina as a bishop to become a bishop. He had mixed—actually, uh, had— <laughs> He had mixed uh, reaction to it. On the one hand, wonderful, this is where God wants me, I, I accept Then I embrace. On the other hand, what are me and Dad going to do now about our Sundays in the fall?
2: <laughs> That's a dilemma.
1: Yeah, so if you want to know the way to his heart, you just follow the Eagles scores. I'll make a note of that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just a remarkable... Um, Story that you told to Marcus Grody uh, the other night on EWTN radio. And I'm so happy that our listeners are going to have a chance to hear it because these stories uh, are really more remarkable in our judgment, many of our judgments, uh, than conversion stories. Uh, Conversion stories are spectacular in their own right, many of them. But a reversion story is a story about uh, the heart of the new evangelization. It's about people who were baptized, who were raised, who have fallen away, and somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit under the auspices one assumes and hopes of a new evangelization of which you are now a formative part, uh, find their way home. And not only find their way home, but become a tremendous uh, instruments uh, of the Holy Spirit in drawing others to Christ because of their own journey. And that was the story that we heard the other night, and I just wonder if you would share it with our listeners.
2: Sure, happy to do it. Uh, you know, in so many ways, I consider myself both a revert and a convert. I, I, I never know where exactly to classify myself. But as you as you indicated, I've I was born into a Catholic family. My my parents had always been Catholic. In fact, my my father, as a young man, had spent some time in a Redemptorist novitiate discerning a vocation to the priesthood. And my mother, when she was in college, uh, really wanted to become a Dominican sister. Wow. But she was an only child, and her parents wouldn't allow it. So, uh, you know, with parents like that, you would think um, I'd be on the fast track to a solid Catholic life <laughs> and formation, but...
1: Not so fast, Dad and Mom.
2: <laughs> no, I, you know, I don't blame them for it. it it's Part of it was the time... I was brought up in the 70s, so all of the changes of Vatican II had just taken place, and they were they were really happening in earnest in our diocese and parish. So there was a lot of turbulence there, and, and I was the youngest of five children, so in some ways, I, as I always say, I think my parents were tired by then. Um, they had a lot going on in their own lives at the time, and... Um, you know, they, as, as children, had been educated in the faith through the parish, not from their parents. So they didn't have the experience of a strong Catholic family life as children themselves. And so they did, I think, what a lot of parents uh, did then as now, which is rely very heavily on the parish for, for your children's faith formation. Well, the problem was this wasn't the 30s and the 40s anymore as they had been raised. Uh, this was the 70s. Uh, and so, the quality of catechesis in our parish was just not not up to par. Um, hmm. I was in a Catholic school for a short time in the parish school, but it happened that my my one of my older brothers, my next one up, who's about three years older than me, uh, for one for whatever reason, one or two of the lay teachers in the parish school just really had it out for him and just had marked him out as a problem. And he boy, he's never going to amount to anything. So there was a religious sister who taught in the school, and she called up my mom one day and said, you need to get him out of here, uh, because it's going to ruin him if you keep him here. And so they pulled me out as well, because they were afraid that uh, by pulling out my brother that the teachers would just turn their attention to me. So from the second grade on, I was educated in public schools, and uh, my mom would drive me to the CCD program in, in the parish, but... Often as not, I would just run to a friend's house as soon as the car rounded the corner on her way home. So much of the time, I didn't even go. Uh, I have hardly any memory of CCD, actually. But I received First Communion at the usual age. I served as an altar boy for a while, and um, we went to Mass as as a family on Sundays. But beyond that, we didn't really talk about it at home. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow, that's just really remarkable, given your parents' backgrounds.
2: Yeah, I, I suppose it is. That's why I say I think it, I think it's just because they had a lot of other things going on in their lives and they just I I don't know fully what it was, but I don't I certainly don't blame them for it. And you know, the other thing I should note though is that um I I was probably also exhibiting a, a real lack of interest in the faith. Had I, had I been interested and in asked questions about it, I'm sure they would have been delighted mm-hmm. to talk to me about it, but as I got older, I I could not possibly have cared less. Uh, about the faith, about the church, any questions of God, that sort of thing. And so um, just before I would have been confirmed around that age, uh, I just slipped away because I noticed that they weren't making me go with them to Mass on Sunday anymore. Again, it was not a conversation. Uh, There was no soapbox moment for me of rebellion or anything like that. It just quietly slipped away. They weren't weren't making me go anymore. Um, And that was it for the next fifteen years wow. so uh, when i got into high school uh, a lot of it was teenage rebellion against you know whatever my parents believed whether it was politically or religiously that sort of thing i'm sure that had a lot to do with my my hostility as well but I, but i gradually became more strident about it uh... there was one episode when i was in high school i don't remember what grade i was in but Walking home from school one day, I saw a group of Christians out on the corner. I don't know what type they were, evangelicals of some some stripe, I assume. And they were handing out Bibles to the kids who were passing by. And I took one silently, without a word. They didn't try to engage me in conversation or anything. They just handed me the Bible, and I just I tore it up as I walked away across the street. And I just let the pages fall into the street. And so there was already something in me there that was tracking, you know, more toward more of a strident atheism at that point. Um, so it was a difficult time, and uh, my parents were very concerned about it. Of course, they, but we never really talked about it. They sort of took a hands-off approach, probably knowing that had they pushed me on it, I would have just reacted and run the other way. Uh, and I, and maybe they, maybe they had hope that eventually I would come around and once I got out of my teenage years I don't know what they were thinking <laughs> entirely
1: were you bringing friends home and were the friends more or less of the same mindset
2: yeah I did have um, I did have a core group of friends and and I don't think now that I, I think about it, I don't think any of them came from religious homes there was one guy who did but he himself was not uh, not religious and we were you know we were all just in and of the world we had, were all being formed by the culture, and our interests were movies and music and girls and all the rest of it. Uh, And for me, discovering music was a big thing. When I was uh, 13, 14 years old, I taught myself how to play the bass guitar, and with a few of these friends formed a band, and that's really what I wanted to do. That was my passion back then, was I wanted to be a rock star, and uh, that's where all of my energies were, were poured. I had no interest in school whatsoever. Uh, and drove my teachers crazy for that reason. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted I wanted to get into music and and go that route. And so that that was my focus with those friends.
1: So more or less, uh, uh, what a C student?
2: Yeah, I, I I drove my teachers crazy because I could have been an A student. Right. Uh, but I just didn't care. I didn't apply myself at all. And in fact, when I graduated, I had no intention of going to college at all. I I wanted to just move to another city and start, you know, try to find my way as a musician. Uh and I did that. I I worked uh, odd jobs for a couple of years full time after graduation and uh eventually I got actually the only reason I started taking classes at the community college is cuz I got tired of uh people in my family and friends of mine saying, "When are you going to you know wise up? When are you going to go back to college? You got to go back to school." And thankfully, I met a couple of good teachers at the community college there who, who made me realize that, yeah, I really do have not only this ability, but the interest, especially in history. Um, so I did end up going back to school uh, at that time, but just, I, I'm a tough nut to crack. I have a very hard head, so sometimes it takes a while to get through to me.
1: Where, do you, where did you go undergrad?
2: Greg? Uh, the University of the Pacific, wow. Stockton, California, which is my hometown. And that was after a couple of years at the community college. So I, I was I was doing that. I was playing in the band on on uh, weekends and in the evening, and uh, just having a grand old time. I, I found the whole experience of being on stage intoxicating. Hmm. You know, it was really I just I loved the 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 transcendent nature, as I describe it now, of having a room full of people applauding and just responding that way. And, and of course, it was a great place to meet girls as well. Um, so that was my other passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about that, uh, even that, I was I was always looking for authenticity. I, I wanted love. I wanted permanence. I wanted the real thing. I, w- I was always a monogamous kind of a guy, even as I was uh, heading down those those paths. I was not the kind of guy who was going to be juggling several women at the same time, uh, I was really looking for the real thing, and, and recognizing that there is such a, such a thing as the real thing, even then. Um, but what really changed things for me, um, and sort of created a real crisis in my life in those years, was uh, that my oldest brother came home from New York one Christmas. He was a, a stage actor, a graduate of Juilliard very good uh, excellent actor, very gifted well, he came home to California one Christmas and dropped the bomb that he had tested positive for the HIV uh, virus, uh, which was an earthquake in the family i mean it didn't it didn't change the way any of us felt about him, of course, we all rallied around, but it was devastating uh, because especially in at that time the the therapies and the treatments that they have now were not not near what they are at the at the present moment so he went back to new york and he he soon got sick enough to where he had to make the decision as to whether he wanted to stay there in new york or or come back and be around his family at this difficult time so he he packed up and came back to california and my parents uh, converted a room in the house to a hospice basically and my dad and my my other brother in particular just really took care of him so beautifully, I ran from it. I just didn't, he, my brother and I had always had a had a very unique relationship, um, but I, I just couldn't face the whole experience of what was happening. So I spent as much of, of my time out of the house with my girlfriend or playing in the band or at school or whatever else to, I just, I, I wanted to avoid it. Um, and eventually, it didn't take long, about four months later, he, he died right there at home with all of us uh, around the bed. And, you know, it's a, it's a devastating thing, but I remember it being a very unemotional experience for me, strangely enough. I remember after he passed, I, I knelt down on the floor next to the bed where he was and, and just laid my head on the pillow and stared him right in the face and, and realized very concretely that whatever it was that made him him was no longer there. I didn't know what that meant. But I could see that there there had been a transformation. There had, something had happened. And I was not obviously a believing young man. So I wasn't really grappling with this philosophically in the moment. But it jarred me enough to where I, I, I really made the choice for atheism at that moment. I just decided that life is absurd. There couldn't possibly be a God and, and make sense of all of this. And so I just I just decided then and there that I really was an atheist, or I'd been tracking in that direction anyway. But that really sealed it. And so I, I became very angry over the next few years, and I, I was very restless and became much more militant about my atheism. My mom used to come up to me now and again and very gently say, you know, you need God in your life. And that, that just annoyed me, uh, no end. And I even tried to... Uh, to undermine her faith more than once, to my shame. Uh, my mom always had a very simple but very deep faith. Mm. You no, know, she was not the kind of person who would be able to articulate uh, the theology of what she believed, and I, I saw that as a weakness. You know, I saw that as a as a crutch, and I tried to undermine it. But she prayed for me in all in in all those years, and and suffered a lot mm. uh, because of it. Uh, in retrospect, of course, I look back now and I realize that that experience of my brother's passing is actually what started me back mm-hmm. on the path home, even though it made me more of an atheist in the short term. That was really the experience that made me start asking the bigger questions for the first time about life and death and meaning and what's the point of it all. Uh, but in the short term, as I say, I, I just became more, more of a militant atheist.
1: Did your brother, may I ask, uh, did he die in the sacraments?
2: Um, I believe he did, yes, I remember there was a family friend, a priest who came over and spent a good deal of time with him in the backyard one day uh and and as my mother tells the story that she we think he was yeah
1: so but there was no you know discussion around the fact that uh you know your brother uh has found peace uh, with god
2: not not that I remember. Okay. Maybe between other members of my family, I don't know, but I don't recall being part of that. But again, that that could simply be because I was running away from it so much. Uh, and I regret that to this day. Uh, so I, um, I finished out college, and by that time I had decided that I wanted to pursue an academic career. I wanted to go on and get a doc- doctorate in history and uh, become a college professor. And so I had the opportunity to go off to Scotland uh, to do a master's degree. They had a very good uh, ancient history department there, which is what I wanted to focus on. And so I did. You know, I was not in a great space, but I, I went off to uh, to Europe and uh, threw myself into this program and this, this new culture and new, new place and uh, angry atheist and all the rest of it. But the interesting thing is that... Um, very, very soon in my time there, I, I met a couple of people who drew my attention in a very deep way. Um, and they were both in my dorm. I lived in a dorm of graduate students uh, who came from all over the world and were studying all kinds of different, different things. Um, the first one was a doctor from Nigeria. He was probably in his 60s, very smartly dressed, and just a, just a joyful guy the most joyful person I had ever met in my life. Hmm. And I was so attracted by that. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing you see in somebody else and you think to yourself, I want what he has. Right. Um, and he he was a Christian. I knew he was a Christian. I don't think he was Catholic, but we never talked directly about God. But I noticed how much God was just naturally part of his conversation and, and about his life. It was just something that he didn't, There was no question about it. It was just the most obvious thing in the world. And he was there doing a doctorate in the School of Divinity. So he was finding ways to bridge his faith with his work life as a doctor. And I used to just love sitting with him in the common room or in the dining hall and just talking about life with him. I was so attracted by his joy. And the other person um, was a young woman from Australia who was doing a doctorate in philosophy she was doing it back home in Australia, but was there in Scotland for a year or two to do some research and study under a particularly prominent uh, professor. And she really struck me because of her her simplicity. She was just uh, also very joyful, but she was one of those people who just have a, had a childlike sense of wonder. She was one of those people that maybe you've met who, who could find the universe in a grain of sand and just marvel at it for for ages. So she and I used to walk on the on the long beach in, in St. Andrews uh, a lot and just talk about life. And it was with her that for the first time in my life, I was able to really uh, discuss these questions openly with somebody, but not in a way that was uh, defensive or hostile. I wasn't trying to undermine her faith. I really respected her and, and Was thinking, wow, if a PhD student in philosophy is a believing Christian, Hmm. you know, she was a non-denominational Christian whose father had been a minister in Australia. So, um, she was probably the first to gently challenge me on some of my my assumptions about the absurdity of life and that and that sort of thing. Although we never really, you know, got deeply into it, and she was never trying to convert me. Uh, But for my birthday one year, she did give me a couple of books by C.S. Lewis. Um, which i did not read remember which ones yeah it was mere christianity and the screwtape letters oh my god if you had a to pick um, too huh oh, wow but i didn't read them at the time but I, at some point in my first year of my program i was getting kind of tired of reading things that uh, reading only things that had footnotes and you know felt like i wanted something else to read for a while so i ended up in the local bookshop and found myself in the cs lewis section And because he was now on my radar because of this gift, I I was poking around at the other titles he had written, and I came across "Surprised by Joy," Hmm. which is, um, Hmm. as I'm sure you know, the the tale of his journey from atheism to belief. And I remember reading that on the back description and thinking to myself, "How is that possible? How do you go from atheism to Christianity?" I, I just it didn't make sense to me. So I bought it and I read it. And at the time it didn't have any impact on me at all, but there was a seed planted there because I would revisit that book later on in, in a couple of years time. And it would just floor me then. Um, but I just, I've, i I immersed myself back in my program and, uh, another very significant thing that happened during my time there in Scotland was that I, I went down to London one weekend, um, uh, I think it was my birthday weekend. Just went down there by myself to tour around and get out of town for a while, see the sights. And it happened that I went on a walking tour one night of, an, of one of the older parts of the city, and I met uh, a young woman from Sweden on this trip. She was there touring with a couple of friends. and We got to talking and hit it off and, and uh, spent hours together that night. She had to fly back the next the next morning. And so we stayed in touch and I ended up going to Sweden for 10 days, two weeks or sometime in the middle of the winter. And that, as I say, I I had my passions growing up were music and women. And I I think I had always sought um, affirmation, if you like, through relationships with women. That that was something I valued very highly and I, I invested a lot of myself in to an unhealthy degree. And that experience in Sweden just left me wrecked. So I was already in a bad state, but that that just, the intensity of it and the the confusion of it all just sent me back to Scotland just as as feeling like a shell. And that was, I remember being on the plane ride going back to Britain and thinking to myself, there has to be more than this. Hmm. There just has to be more to life than this. And I, ju- I had a sense for the first time that I was barking up the wrong tree. I was on the wrong path somehow. Uh, it had nothing to do with faith at that time. That, that w- I would never have considered that then. Um, but, you know, I've always been one of those kind of guys who has to get into the gutter before he'll look up. You know, God God has to be, can't, subtlety doesn't work with me. He's got to hit me with a two-by-four. Um So I just poured myself back into my program and finished up there and ended up back in the States. Um, And I had been very confident about my desire to pursue an academic path, but I had had enough frustrating and um, disillusioning kind of experiences in my graduate program in Scotland that made me question that, do I really want my life to be an academic life? I really want to spend this much time in faculty meetings and in uh writing things that probably only other academics are going to read right. um and i just I just wasn't sure I could see that anymore, and that created a real crisis for me because I had been on this path that I thought I had identified and I thought was clearly laid out for me, and now I had to figure out what else to do in the meantime while i while i sorted sorted through this so I was looking for work. I moved back in with my parents, uh, which is always hard, uh, looking for work and finding it difficult. Uh, I actually even had an interview with the CIA out here in, in Washington, D.C. Hmm. Uh, I had applied through a friend of mine who works there and had encouraged me to do it. I was the last thing in the world I would have considered. but So I did that. I had a couple of interviews there. That didn't go anywhere. and came back uh, to California, and it, it happened that my sister, one of my sisters, had started teaching art at at the local Catholic high school in Stockton at that time. And they had an opening for a history teacher. So I thought, well, that's, that's appropriate. That'll give me some good experience while I'm figuring this out. And so I applied, and I got the job, probably because of my connection with her. Well... Given where I was, the state that I was in at that time, I'm sure if anybody had been thinking clearly about it, since I was not, uh, they would have advised me against the idea of taking on five sections of sophomores, hmm. uh, You know, given the, the delicate state I was in. And it, it turned out to be a disaster. I mean, in the first two weeks on the job, those kids just rolled right over me. I was not prepared at all for that, and I ended up resigning. Hmm. And I really just fell apart. Uh, I just—I had no sense of who I was anymore. I had no idea where my life was headed, what was it, what it was all about, and I just broke. But it turned out, in retrospect, that, but God's providence being what it is, that job was never the point of my going to that school. There was a, a an oblate of St. Francis de Sales, an elderly priest who had just retired from teaching at the time that I started there. And he, for whatever reason, on orientation day, right away took a liking to me. He he was really drawn to me, and he came up and engaged me in conversation. And I just, I liked him. He was such a likable guy. Um, He passed away just a few years ago. And uh, so when everything went down and I fell apart and resigned the job, he was the first person I thought of to go talk to, because I needed to talk to somebody about everything that had been going on and this sort of existential crisis that I had found myself in. Because for years I had been uh, consuming a steady diet of atheist literature and poetry and drama and existentialism, that kind of stuff. And it really polluted my, my soul and my mind in a way. So he, of course, uh, readily agreed, and I, I would go over to the rectory um, and just spend hours over there. And we wouldn't talk about God or faith he he was took a very gentle approach we talked about history and movies and all the other things that we had in common but eventually i became very comfortable with him and uh and opened up about this existential crisis that i was finding myself in and he very gently guided me guided me back and asked a lot of good questions and at one point he he said to me you know Why don't you come to Mass? I celebrate Mass in a local parish every Sunday. Why don't you just come and sit in the back and listen? Don't come up for communion. Just come in the back and sit and listen. And so I did, because I liked and trusted him so much by this time. I would just go every Sunday and listen to him, mostly because I loved listening to him preach.
1: All right, John, hold it right there. My studio is telling me we have to break. This is a suspenseful moment, folks. (laughs) We're going to try to find out when we come back exactly what happened when he was sitting there listening to this wonderful priest. Uh, This uh, edition of our recourse is brought to you by Icona Resorts in this month of Mary. The Icona Resorts are owned and operated, of course, by dear friends of ours, Yusmita and Josh McCallan. There are three of them now. The original in Wildwood Crest called Icona Diamond Beach. The second in Avalon as of last summer, known as Icona Golden Inn. And this year, a brand-new resort in Cape May called Icona Cape May, fittingly enough. Each of these are four-star resorts with five-star customer reviews and three-star prices. Oceanfront luxury at affordable prices. I invite all our listeners to go on the websites and read the guest reviews. Never read anything quite like them. Not only do Icona guests love the properties with their oceanfront vistas and newly upgraded rooms and great dining and affordable prices, they love the Icona staff most of all. In review after review, you'll read of the staff going above and beyond to provide the kind of personal service that distinguishes an Icona resort from all the others in South Jersey. And Josh McCallan, one of the owners, explains why. He says, we have something we call the Aloha Culture Card. And every week, We train as one family, the housekeepers, the busboys, the chefs, the GMs, the maintenance staff, our front desk, concierge folks, the president, CEO, everybody. We're all in the same room at the same time, and we recite the words on that card we all carry, and we pledge to live them each and every day. And he adds, we know if we stay faithful to this pledge, our guests will come back, and they're also going to tell their friends about us. And by the way, that's exactly what's happening. And let me offer a personal testimony at this point. John and I have been going to the Golden Inn in Avalon for many years, but in recent years, tell the truth, the service and property itself had slipped a bit. We heard you, and Josh, had bought the place and were intent on restoring it to its original luster. So last September, to celebrate our 47th anniversary, we headed to Avalon and checked into what was then the newest Icona, Icona Golden Inn. I'm going to tell you this, we had one of the best long weekends we ever have had in our years. We couldn't believe what our friends had done to the property. They quite simply turned it into an entirely new high-end luxury resort. We stayed in a junior suite with a balcony that overlooked the ocean. The decor and furnishings and amenities were almost surreal. It kind of felt at times like we were in a movie. The tour restaurants, by the way, uh, were amazing. Uh, Great menu, great food, great service, but everywhere we went Every day we were there as guests, we saw smiles on the faces of all the people on the staff. You could see it was a place where the people who worked there liked coming to work and actually liked the work that they were doing. We could also see that the people who were guests knew that they were experiencing something very, very special. So when I tell you that you simply can't do better than an Icona resort, whether in Cape May, in Wildwood Crest, or in Avalon, you can take that to the bank. But here's a caution. I'm told reliably, I think, that bookings are proceeding very quickly in each of the three resorts. So if you're heading down the shore this summer and you want to spare yourself the hassle of trying to find a place to rent, one that fits for you and your family, go online now and book a room at one of the three Icona resorts. And when you do, please tell them you appreciate their supporting Catholic Radio and In His Sign Network. Folks, can't recommend this one highly enough.
3: is Lucille Francesco. I just wanted to say a few words about In His Sign Network, which to me is personified in the person of Kathleen McCarthy. That loving voice that comes through the radio, you can just hear her personal interest in each of us. She's like a guardian angel. She personifies the light of Christ and the friendship that is waiting for us with Jesus has the ability to reach out to each of us with a phrase or a word that says I understand and he does too when Kathleen is speaking you're certain that she's speaking directly to you no matter what the topic may be on the program that day and if you have the opportunity to meet Kathleen in person which is a gift everyone should experience she looks directly into your eyes and blesses your soul no matter what the past may have been or the troubles you may have had It is a wonderful experience to listen to In His Sign radio network.
0: You're listening to In His Sign Catholic Radio. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Bringing the fire... Of God's love to the world. We often think of the scripture where the disciples were walking to Emmaus, where they said, were not our hearts burning within us as Jesus spoke to us on the road? As we travel along the road together in our Archdiocese of Philadelphia and Camden Diocese, We thank God for our loyal circle of family and friends. Please consider sponsoring one of our new programs in the name of your parish priest, family member, or friend. It would be a beautiful way of helping us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Give us a call at six one oh five two seven twenty nine oh six or visit us on the web at in dot com okay welcome
1: back everybody and John um I am introducing you to the only radio show in America where the commercials are actually longer than the show itself. (laughs) Anyway, you're sitting in the back of the church. You're just kind of listening. What's going on in your mind at this point?
2: Well, there were, you know, the Lord undertook this campaign from a few different fronts at the same time. So that was one piece, is that I... had come to have this great friend in father kelly father clark kelly was his name and so i think i had been softened my defenses were starting to to drop a little bit and i wasn't quite at the point of saying that i might believe in god but at least i was able to talk about the questions with somebody in a relaxed way and and you know really respond to those questions there were a couple of other things going on at the same time though one was that my, my mother was the uh, organizer and the coordinator of the Perpetual Adoration Chapel in their parish, which is a little country parish. And so she would be the one who would get the phone call if somebody on the roster couldn't make their hour for one whatever reason. So that put her in a bind a lot, uh, needing to either go over there herself or to find somebody else who, who could sub... And so sometimes she would, she would get herself in a, in a bind here and have to call on me, because I wasn't working now. I'd resigned my job. I had the time. And so I would sometimes have to go over there and sit there in the Adoration Chapel. And at the times when I was by myself, I, I would sometimes just get up and start pacing around because I was so uncomfortable. And I would find myself talking out loud to the God that I said I didn't believe in because I knew uh, it didn't occur to me, but looking back I can see that I I was very much aware that there was a presence in that room, that I was not alone. Couldn't have articulated it, I wouldn't have pinpointed that in in the Blessed Sacrament, but it was enough to to make me uncomfortable and start walking around the chapel and talking out loud to this God, even as an atheist.
1: What would you say to him?
2: Uh, You know, I, I don't even remember now. I think it was probably just sharing the struggles and the doubts and the 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 anger that is, you know, oozing out of my heart at this point. It had been stored up for so many years, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a real restlessness. And uh, it was also at this time um, that I was doing a lot of reading from my father's library. My dad has an incredible library, just stocked with Chesterton and Ronald Knox, Hilaire Belloc. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. all the classics that he remembered when he was a kid and growing up. and So I started to read. Uh, Thomas Howard was another one that had a big influence on me, and, and, right. I, and I reread C.S. Lewis. I got back into Surprise by Joy, and as I said earlier, this time it just hit me like a freight train. And night after night I would sit there and I would drop whatever book it was that I was reading in my lap and, and say to myself, this makes perfect sense. I have been completely wrong about what Christianity is, but I just couldn't make the jump to faith. Um, and at this time, I started to suffer really bad panic attacks and anxiety attacks, uh, just really terrible, debilitating things. And, and what I would usually do is pack—they because would, they would most often strike at night. And I would usually just gather myself into my truck and drive over to the, to the parish— and go into the main church. I didn't usually go into the Adoration Chapel because I I wanted to be by myself. Uh, But I would go in the main church, which is all dark except for the candles, and I would just sit there in the front pew and just think. And all I knew is that when I left, I felt better, and that's all that mattered when I got into the midst of these anxiety attacks. Uh, So all these things are going on at the same time, uh, visits to the adoration chapel and to the church my conversations with father kelly all the reading that i was doing and finally some months later i had another panic attack a particularly bad one i got into the truck i went back over to the church sat in the front pew and i just i just broke down weeping and i finally fell to my knees in front of the altar there and i i just said out loud i cannot do this anymore mm. I need you. Now, I didn't know who you was, really. Uh, I mean, I was learning a lot, but all I knew is that something in me had broken. Something had changed. Something had shifted very, very profoundly. And I knew when I collected myself at the end of this experience, um, when I left the church, I knew that I couldn't just go back home and go to bed, because when I woke up the next day, I would just dismiss it as a a dream or a weakness, or I'm, you know, I'm glad that's over. I knew I had to be held accountable. Somebody had to know about this. So, of course, Father Kelly was the first person I thought of. So I drove clear across town in the pouring rain, knocked on his rectory door. It must have been 11 o'clock at night, and thankfully, he was a night owl. And he answered the door, and he later told me with a laugh that as soon as he opened the door and saw me there, this drowned rat on the on the <laughs> front porch, he said, "I knew you'd given up the minute I saw you." Wow, wow! And so he heard my confession for a good hour that night. Um, but the thing is, I, I was not happy about this. I I think I had echoing in my heart what C.S. Lewis said about his own conversion that this was not a, a a light and joyful thing for him, he felt like the most reluctant and dejected convert in all of England, and I really relate to that because i to me this felt like a defeat it felt like i was I was surrendering like I was giving in that I'd been beaten somehow, you know that I had to admit that there was this force out there that was much bigger than me and stronger than me and I still think I think I viewed God as sort of a a, a stern overlord it was you know just eager to catch up with me and read me the riot act. I think that was my image of God. Um, But I think it was also because I knew I, I didn't want to be halfway about this. If I was going to be a believer, I didn't want to just be a passive one who showed up at mass on Sunday and then never thought about it again. I knew my life would have to change. And when I was most honest with myself, I had to admit that I wanted it to change in the sense that I wanted to be happy I wanted to be joyful. I wanted to be at peace, especially. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that religious faith was the path for that, but I, I had to, I had to explore it, and I was at least ready to acknowledge that there is a God. Um, but I, 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 I knew that my life would have to change, and I didn't want to be halfway about it. And I was still clinging very tightly to my former way of life, all the habits that I had had acquired over the years, you know, relationships with women and all these other things that I, I didn't want to let go of mainly because I didn't, I didn't know what life could be like without that. As I, as I put it on the Marcus Grodi's show, you know, sometimes, sometimes we cling to the very things that make us miserable because they're so familiar. Right. Right. And I think that was the case for me. I just didn't know what else to do, and I didn't want to surrender. So all of my usual objections to the Catholic faith uh, were surrounding the moral issues, as they often are for people. And I had a lot still to learn and a lot still to struggle through. And so Father Kelly and I continued to meet, and I watched a lot of EWTN and The Journey Home and a lot of other things, went to talks with, with my mom from time to time. and uh, It took a while. You know, there there were these moments of of breaking through, but this this was for the most part for me a long a long and difficult slug. Uh, and where it really came to a head for me was that Father Kelly stunned me one day in, in suggesting that I might have a call to the priesthood, which I just I laughed him out of the room. I said that that is easily the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And have you not been listening to me for all these recent months? and about my life and my interests and all the rest of it and he he just said well I just wanted to bring it up just in case and just you know don't worry about it well eventually I couldn't get the idea out of my head and I found myself in a bind here because I was I had I had applied to go back to Scotland at this point I had been dis- to, um, accepted into the doctoral program I had decided that I did want to pursue an academic career after all and that's what I was going to do Um, Well, it happened that I had to have knee surgery at that time, which was perfect timing because it required me to postpone Scotland for a year. And um, after my recovery from the surgery, which was a good three or four months, I I had a good five, six months available to me where I had to sort through this vocational call. And so a priest friend of the family suggested that I go use that time uh, with religious communities, just go spend time with... People who have made this choice, who have made this commitment, and just see what see what God tells you. So I did. I set off what on what ended up being. I didn't. I didn't have it all planned out in advance, but it ended up being a five month cross country trek, mm. uh, where I stayed in a lot of monasteries for a couple of weeks at a time. I was really drawn to monasteries in particular, Trappist monasteries especially, and uh, that's what I did. And I. I remember vividly uh, pulling off the main road to the first monastery where I had booked myself. It was a little a little Trappist monastery in the Ozarks of Missouri, uh, really out in the sticks. And I pulled off the main road onto the gravel road leading to the monastery, and I remember having a moment of panic and thinking, what am I doing? I have no idea what their life is like. I have no idea what it's going to be like to be in an environment like this. And I've just booked a solid week in this place. Uh, but I did. I, I powered through. I went there. I checked myself in. They showed me to the guest room, and it was the middle of winter, so it was nighttime. Uh, I mean, it got dark early. I unpacked my stuff, and I made my way to the church in the darkness, and I just sat there in a in a stall somewhere, and gradually over time, I could see these shadowy forms of the monks coming into the chapel as they were getting coming in for vespers. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, this chant just rose out of the darkness, and I was absolutely transfixed mm-hmm. by this. So much so that when I, when I left that church uh, after, after Vespers, I walked out onto the porch of the guest house, and for the first time in my life, I was just overwhelmed with a profound experience of God's peace and His presence, and I knew that he was with me, that he was going to be with me on this whole journey, and that he, not only that he existed, but that he was really fully present uh, to me and in my life. And I I had never been one who slept well. I was always a restless soul at night and my mind going in a thousand different directions all all through my life. But that, that night, the second my head hit the pillow, I was out and I've never slept wow. that, that soundly in my life. And so that went on for five five months. I went to all kinds of different communities, and it, it, I quickly realized, though, that, that what I had thought was a vocational discernment trek was not that at all. It was God. It was God leading me out into the desert to meet Him face to face for the first time, so that I could begin to make sense of this change that had happened, um, so that I could learn how to pray, and to do all of that in in what I now call the school of silence. those monastic environments were so crucial for this work. And my, my journals, which I just recently reread uh from that period, are just filled with struggle and, you know, wrestling with the angel and coming to terms with my former way of life and what this new way of life would mean. And am I called to be a priest or am I not? And um there was a lot pouring out on the pages in those months, but it was such a rich experience. Uh, that I was I, just invaluable. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I obviously decided ultimately that I was not called. I did uh, go and live in a Trappist monastery for two months later on, and I ended up joining the Dominicans for what turned out to be about a year and a half, and that, that finally settled it for me. But um, such a profound uh, period. And that was really where I think it all became very personal. What had initially been an intellectual conversion for me became very personal and uh after i left the dominicans i stayed on at the at their graduate school there to finish my degree in theology and that was uh, funny enough where i met my wife because she was doing the same thing she had discerned a monastic vocation herself and uh so to meet somebody that i could share all that with and she had been baptized as an adult as as a in college um so that that was very very precious and and uh, we used to teach together in our parish in the RCIA process and we taught together in um catechetical programs for the diocese and that that was where i really realized that i wanted to make this my life life's work if i could hmm. and that's what led me to now much to my surprise still to this day uh to what i'm doing now i mean it just it still boggles my mind to think of where i where i've been and uh, to be doing this work now as as i as I always tell people it 's proof of god 's sense of humor uh, so
1: remarkable remarkable remarkable. how did this door open uh from your you and your wife working in the parish uh, evangelizing uh,
2: yeah oh i 'm sorry was that a question or yeah
1: yeah i 'm asking yeah. how did it open who how did who called how did you hear?
2: We were uh, we went to daily mass one evening there, and the parochial vicar. Of, it was a Dominican parish, and I worked at the Dominican school at this time, uh, where I had graduated. Uh, the parochial vicar came up to us and basically said the RCIA coordinator had just quit in the middle of the year, and so they needed somebody to, to fill in. and He said, "Would you and Colleen be interested in leading that?" Well, we jumped at the chance. Of course, we had no idea the funny uh, what what it would be what it would involve and the funny thing was that I had done everything I could to avoid going through r c i a when I came back, and so had she mm. uh she had managed to be baptized through the campus ministry in a different way without really going to r c i a and i wasn't i wasn't confirmed until I was thirty mm. and I had imagine, managed to do that also without having to sit in on the classes so the, here here we are the two uh, you know, people who had skirted the process were now going to be in charge of it. Uh, that It was really as simple as that. We ended up coordinating it for the next eight years. And getting involved, too, uh, with the diocese, as they say, teaching in the catechetical institutes there. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing, like, there's nothing like teaching the faith to deepen your faith.
1: Do you get a chance, uh, John, to share this remarkable story in your work formally?
2: Yeah, whenever I will give a talk in a parish or something like that, I'll often drop in an anecdote or two. But, but I've, I've never been able to unfold it uh, in its entirety, well, at least the abbreviated form of its entirety, until Marcus invited me onto the Journey Home and now your program and, and that? that sort of thing.
1: So Wants to be a book, doesn't it?
2: Now you know uh, Thomas Howard, who I, I greatly admire. I, his books had a lot to, had a big impact on me when I was reading my way back. Uh, he actually, in an email, once suggested that to me as well to to write it down in book form. I, I should probably do that someday.
1: Well, it will happen. I just have that strong sense it will happen when it's meant to happen. Uh, God uh, usually doesn't let souls like you get too far away and when he kind of nudges and guides you back with that light, delicate, providential finger, um, it's always for the same purpose, and that is uh, not just for your soul and the souls of your wonderful family, but for many other souls right now who are hungering uh, as you were, looking at this life and this world and saying, is that all there is, like the old song says, there has to be more, Uh, and finding it only as you did, in front of the real presence. That's what I take from this, that the the way back ultimately was really triggered, uh, almost turbocharged, if you could say it, in the silence uh, of your weight on the Lord.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: And, you know, the beauty of it is, the elliptical beauty of it is, that there's your mom who got you started holding your hand, uh, you know, initially getting you on trajectory, All of a sudden, things somehow turned uh, sideways, the wheels came off, and there she is really holding your hand, so to speak, metaphorically, as you venture back into the heart of the mystery.
2: Right. Really a beautiful story. Yeah, she prayed for me so much in those years. A lot of adoration hours, a lot of rosaries, a lot of divine mercy chaplets, (laughs) And still does to this day. Yeah,
1: God love her, John. In the five minutes we have remaining, just if you could, just give us an overview of what you see in the church today. Is there a renewal in progress, and if so, what is its contour?
2: Oh, is Brian? Is that all?
1: Uh, <laughs> okay, and take four minutes to answer it.
2: <laughs> okay i do see a renewal i think it's been going on for a couple of decades now and it's it's quiet in some ways it's gradual in some ways Um you know i still look out there and i see a whole lot of catholics who are kind of sleepwalking uh... showing up to mass even every sunday but not really thinking about why they're there not really bringing their faith and their life together but at the same time, I do see an increasing core of disciples emerging and the call to the new evangelization being taken seriously. I think it's going to take time. I think it's going to be gradual and the church may get a whole lot smaller in the meantime. I, I don't pretend to be a prophet, but it's it's possible. Um And there are so many programs now and and apostolates and ministries that that were only beginning to be set up when I was coming back to the the faith almost 20 years ago now. Uh, There there are a lot of resources, a lot of great uh, ways for people to get engaged and to learn more about their faith. And I think a lot more families, strong Catholic families, are emerging who are really taking seriously their role as the primary educators of their children uh, in the faith and really seeking out opportunities to raise them in that way, even if that means picking up the family and moving to a place where it might be more, uh, you know, conducive to that, to that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: all in, So all I, in. I
2: do see a renewal taking place. I just, I couldn't tell you how, how it's going to look or how long it's going to take, but I, but I do, I do see it taking place in a quiet way.
1: Well, the good Cardinal uh, Ratzinger uh, at one point in that famous interview about 45 years ago when asked about the church's future, he said, smaller, holier, typical brevity uh, of that great intellect. Uh, And you have to wonder, uh, these people are on fire. Uh, They are all in the ones you speak of. I know them uh, myself. We have five academies here in the area, and the families are throwbacks. They're to die for. And I always thought the most hopeful but mysterious line in any papal encyclical ever was the line of Pius XII and Mestici Corpus when he said, it's a great mystery that the salvation of the many depends on the holiness of the few. Mm. Oh, That's powerful. And here we have a relative few, certainly smaller, certainly holier, being asked to carry uh, the cross and to persevere and endure for the mystical body of Christ, that there will be a new springtime, and many of them are aware of it, and they hope, and they trust, and they are about as good as good gets. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's so true.
1: John, we are so blessed to have had you today to hear your remarkable story. Uh, We just ask uh, all our listeners to pray for your family, for your work, which we commend to the Immaculate. Uh, our sponsor is the great Saint Maximilian Colby, Our patron. Uh, we just hope for nothing but all good things in your work, and hopefully, if we're lucky, a winning season for the Eagles for the good for your boss.
3: <laughs>
2: I'll pass that along. I but thank you especially for the prayers. I certainly need them.
1: Uh, you will have them, my friend, not just from me, but from our listeners and. Um, please know uh, that all your intentions and the intentions of that wonderful diocese will remain in our prayers as well.
2: Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate your invitation to be with you today.
1: Thank you, John.